Hello and welcome to the Quarter Horse Hauler with Ryan Fleetwood. Today we have the distinct honor of being with Dr. Wayne Burwash in his home and we're going to do a bit of an interview with Dr. Burwash and so I'd like to introduce you to him at this point. He's sitting here with me and Dr. Burwash has been an, an influence and an inspiration to many of us in the quarter horse business and in the horse business. I think that a lot of people watching will recognize your name today, Doc. And, and for those that don't, we'd just like you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your past and your history and and yourself. You know, I well, I started out, and my dad loved horses, even though I grew up in a dairy farm. And so, you know, and we were a rodeo family, and so that was the start of it. And and then as I, I got older, and when after I graduated from veterinary college, we were more involved there, got involved in the quarter horse business. My my ex-wife, my first wife, was very horsey too. And so we had horses, and I I went and interned at Kansas State University, and, and we actually picked up a couple of horses there too. And then, so in the 70s, and, and this was all back in 1970 is when I come back from Kansas and, and started a veterinary practice here in Calgary. And so I, I had the, we had some horses and we're never quite sure what direction to go, but we had a horse. This J Bar Dolly horse, who was a kilobar, King Leobar, granddaughter King Leobar. And so that was the first really good horse that we had in the family. And, and she turned out to be a, a great reigning horse, working cow horse. And so that really initially pointed the direction for me in uh, in the breeding program was wanting to do the cow horse and back in the 70s it was interesting the the working cow horse was really got to be very popular and i you know it's come back again just recently but yeah yeah safe to say that as a quarter horse man you have seen a lot of changes through the years Oh yeah, that's for sure. Uh, like you know, when when I started, and again, you know, my focus has been more narrow in the, even though I was a rodeo person to start with. But you know, I, once I started horse showing, then that was the focus. So we never did have the quarter horse racing bloodlines at all. It was right. more the all around, and so you know through. Uh, starting in the 80s right through till, you know, after 2010, 2012, 13, the whole breeding program here was focused on the all-around horse. Mm -hmm. Horses that were heavy enough muscle to halter some, really focused on good conformation, and and then, of course, some athletic ability, and we all wanted pretty horses. And yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you know, it's so a whole mix so that we could halter and do all the performance events. And so, Do you think, Wayne, that a lot of all-around type horses exist anymore? Well, they do, yes. I, 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 I don't see the the focus near as much now on the all around horse. I get seen like and maybe I was narrow and I you know, I was a Canadian and and just you know, working more locally. 
so I think most people back in the 80s and 90s, for sure, were more focused on an all-around horse, especially mm-hmm. for the horse shows. Mm-hmm. You know, there was for sure the rainers and the cutters and and that. And, of course, the the team penners and, and that really became popular then. And and there was always the, the team ropers and the barrel racers, which, of course, is now huge, too. So, yeah. But, yes, I think we saw a lot more of the all-around horse, whereas that sort of evolved. And probably because the competition got tougher in all these various disciplines, that a person had to really focus on that to be competitive or and to win, I guess, more than be competitive if you mm-hmm. wanted to be a winner. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we saw the involvement, you know, so I can look back and think when we had the 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 cow horses, a fifteen one hand horse was or was, you know, a good size. Right. And now, more recently, just because of the bloodlines and what I happen to be producing and what started winning, I because I always liked a a bigger free-moving horse. Mm-hmm. So now my breeding program, and I must say I haven't got a big breeding program. I got two broodmares, yeah. but you know I'm focused on trying to produce a hunt seat horse. Right. So now I'm looking at a 16-2 to 17-hand horse, right. a big, more thoroughbred type of horse, a big sure. free-moving horse. Yeah. So, you know, interesting to have an evolving, you know, depending on, to a certain extent, what the horses were good at when started showing. And then you, of course, go on from there sure, and, uh, sure. and focus on that. Yeah. Form to function. Yeah. And yeah. also interesting because in contrast to the more cow horse type of horses or those disciplines, then we're looking at those horses overall getting shorter and shorter. Well, yeah, the the cutters are smaller and closer to the ground, of course. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the cow horses are, I don't know, maybe a bit bigger than they used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, I uh, my one daughter-in-law is really into cow horse, and so she probably doesn't like a horse that's 16 hands, but still is strong in the 15-hand range, right. yeah. And in fact, the beginning of our involvement together was when I finally got up the nerve to call Dr. Wayne Burwash and ask if perhaps I could bring a stallion here to stand. And that was, that was when you and I first met and, and you were very kind and very gracious to an, an utter no one who was me calling you to see if we could perhaps bring a stallion here so so was that after 2000 what how long ago was that oh my gosh 20 years ago yeah it has to be that long ago i think that it would have been jazz poco golden blue who came here first and then we had simply a spark here one season yeah 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 yeah, so we had a real range of studs, and and mm-hmm. we had a lot of them come in to be collected to ship semen and and to freeze semen. We got into the freezing, and then we started doing embryos back in the eighties too. You know, and they were kind of unheard of in the horse business then, and they were really getting hold in the cattle business. And mm-hmm. so we started doing embryos back in the eighties, even embryo yeah. transfers. Yeah, yeah, before so, most others were. Yeah, 
Yeah. So, you know, the breeding was always a real challenge and really exciting for me. And so yeah. that was my passion, I guess. You know, I liked all of veterinary medicine, but the breeding was really mm-hmm. my big thing. And mm-hmm. uh, so... And and so, Doc, what what would you say with a specific focus on the overall health of the animal has been a change that you've seen perhaps from the beginning of your career to now? I don't think the horses are nearly as sound now as they mm. used to be. You know, and maybe that's good for the horse or the veterinary business because it means that a lot more horses require veterinary attention to keep mm-hmm. them sound mm-hmm. and keep them going. But, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, it seemed like we, you know, really were campaigning horses fairly hard and training and and maybe not traveling the miles that we do now, but yet, we didn't seem to have to do that much with them to keep them sound. Whereas now, and I, I think it's an evolution of how we're selecting of horses, you know, where, and there's lots of discussion now about trying to change the industry, but it's sort of evolved where the futurities in the quarter horse business, whether it be reining, cutting, uh, cow horse, pleasure, whatever, or even now the lunge line, you know, so we're, we're asking more of these horses at a younger age. Mm-hmm. And that's probably not good for them. They sure aren't mature. Their bones aren't mature. Their joints are not mature. And so I like to kind of compare them in our selection process with the warm bloods. You know, the warm bloods, uh, the Grand Prix horses in dressage and jumping often were teenagers, mm-hmm. but they barely get them started under saddle till three or four. And, you know, like the jumpers, which I do a lot of FEI jumping shows, you know, they hardly do much jumping till they're seven. So they bring them on very, very slowly. And so they're still good. And so the the real top horses are, like I said, were often teenagers. And and whereas the quarter horse business, and almost regardless of the discipline, if we're looking at competitive horses anyhow, mm-hmm. the focus is on younger ones. So we push these horses for the two-year-old pleasure classes, for yeah. the futurities, the, the three-year-old cutting futurities, reigning futurities, you name it. And, and so, and what happens is that these horses that win those big events, of course, are highly promoted, and often they are retired to the breeding shed if they're stallions or mares to be in a broodmare. Mm-hmm. And so they 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 don't have to have the longevity in their soundness. You know, if they're sound enough to, to make it there, then right. th- that's all they need. And so who knows? Yeah. And often retired before they reach physical maturity. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. they're just aren't even four years old yet. Yeah, could you could you take us through in some layman's terms the physical maturity process of a horse and when they are actually mature? Well, yeah, and and it, there isn't a distinct time. 
you know, we know that the growth plates are all mostly closed. The growth plates in the bone, where the bones are growing, they close. The, the growth plates are cartilage, and so that's where the growth of the the length and the diameter of the bones mm-hmm. come from. And so all the growth plates are pretty well closed in the horse by the time they're about 27, 28 months old. So before they're three years old, anyhow. Mm -hmm. And there's different maturity times, you know, but that's probably the average one we talk about in the quarter horse. You know, the Arabians tend to be, if I want to compare breeds, they tend to be a little bit slower maturing. But anyhow, so the quarter horse is uh, really not, as far as bone development, mature until then. But you still, even beyond then, you still have a maturation process of of the muscles and ligaments and tendons and everything that, mm-hmm. you know, so, you know, we... We shouldn't really be pushing these horses that much. And again, I, if I circle back to the lunge line, you know, we are working these horses as yearlings. And the other thing is we're working them in a circle, which probably isn't the best thing to be doing with them either. Right. And so we really got to be guarded about overdoing them in a in a circle, lunging them in a circle. Right. Because that tends to be that constant uh, uh, turning, whether it's one way or another, is, yes. is harder on the joints. Yeah. Right, right. So, yeah, I I think the horses generally are not near as sound. The other thing, the other interesting thing I just thinking is that now, and again, personally, I used to always like to really have a good look at at the stallions I'm breeding to. At first, mm-hmm. I, back in the 80s, I had my own stallions, but since the early 90s, I've always bred outs to outside stallions, and I used to really be critical. But now, with all the ship semen and frozen semen, uh, I'll, I'm breeding to some horses that I haven't even seen. You know, I see pictures of them sure. in videos, Video, but yeah. so I really don't know the confirmation. But you know uh, that look or that presence in the show ring. And again, I'm just talking about showing, you know, it's different than racehorses or or team roping or, you know, the rodeo horses where, you know, they just got to get the job done. Mm-hmm. But even rainers and cutters got to look good while they're doing it. Absolutely. And uh, so I think that uh, I know if I want to compete on a world scale and i'm trying with my breeding program to to go beyond being just competitive locally and and uh, you know if i get a really good horse then i want to hit the big shows in the u.s and like the nsba world show and the aqha world show yeah and so i i know that i have to have a a certain look if I want a hunt seat horse now or a hunter under <laughs> saddle horse or a Western pleasure horse or, you know, but even the rainers have to have that look, you know, and, sure. and so, so I, and again, I maybe shouldn't be admitting this, but I, I've probably sacrificed some confirmation for sure but also i'm seeing my own horses as not being as sound as they used to be Hmm. again because the focus is on that look and 
maybe a shorter longevity. You know, for sure, when I was breeding for an amateur horse where Shannon would show and, you know, maybe want to ride for, say, five to 10 years even, you know, you got to have a horse that's going to stay sound. Whereas yeah. with the futurities now, like I'm geared to, to wanting to produce a horse that may be a, a really good three-year-old hunter under saddle prospect and, right. and uh, then market them if they're really successful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Dr. Burwash, would you say then in conversation about the fact that, you know, all of us tend to ship semen on horses and, and breed to stallions that we perhaps never actually seen and looked at, that some of the soundness changes over the years have come about because we're not maybe doing a full a full exploration of what some of these horses are that that we're breeding to. Yeah. Yeah, no for sure because I've 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 looked at stallions, I see a lot of horses and I go to the big horse shows like the World Show and that and and I I see horses that Stallions, particularly, is what I'm looking at because I got my own mares. And there's some that are really winning a lot and are great in the show ring. And yet you look at them and they'll have possibly a major conformational fault. And so they then I'll discount them as a, a stallion, or I mm -hmm. sure want to pick a stallion that is particularly strong in an area where, say, my mares are weak. And so, yeah. but, you know, there again, because uh, of the promotion in that and the, the potential of the value that it got a popular bloodline. And I think you appreciate, Ryan, that, you know, the, the bloodlines get kind of narrow in a lot of the disciplines. And if you aren't breeding to that bloodline, then you kind of sacrifice the marketability or well not maybe the market well yeah the marketability mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. well as the the price you get from mm -hmm. them yeah and so i'm finding myself being i don't know if i can say i'm forced to but if i want to be successful both in the sense of having that look in the show ring as well as being marketable then i gotta be mostly with a popular bloodline that has that look and that movement, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. whether it's a hunter under saddle or the Western pleasure, whatever the goal whatever, is, or, yeah. or the reigning. If I was reigning, yeah. you know, yeah. you, you get fads in the show ring, sure. right? Maybe shouldn't call them fads, but trends in the show ring. Yeah. And you gotta be in that trend to win. Right. And in the judge classes, I mean, right. I think oftentimes, you know, maybe a person should be just uh, raising race horses or barrel horses or team roping horses where it all just. Where, where there's something there's more time. objective. Yeah. When it's all time, you mm -hmm. know, so. Yeah. It doesn't matter There's, how fancy. Right. Well, they, you know, everybody nope. likes a nice yeah. horse, but a barrel horse, if whoever gets across the finish line first. Right. There's nobody's judgment line. affecting the outcome. No. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's just the timing. Yeah. 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 I always find it interesting that we are 
involved in a breed that evolved to become the biggest breed registry in the world in a short time, really, based on the versatility of the horse. And now we have this market that's very discipline specific and pursuing it almost exclusively only that way. Mm -hmm. Don't you? Well, yeah. And I often think of it as maybe a testimony to how versatile the quarter horse was, I guess, because, you know, we used to, and as I've talked earlier, I was breeding a horse that could do it all, hopefully, Mm -hmm. and mostly as an amateur or a youth horse, but yet, you know, they, they would show open too. But now, as we selectively breed, we're selecting the expertise or the the movement and that look and everything of the different disciplines and the quarter horse has evolved where they can do all these things so you've got the the hunter under saddle that may be 17 hands tall as a as a two-year-old which is maybe a little bit too big in my mind but yet for sure they're huge and yet the other end of the spectrum, and a pick on the cutting horse probably, is being the the ones that tend to be the smaller. And again, by selection, where they're the best horses for that discipline, they may not even be hardly 14 hands tall, some of them. Some mm-hmm. of the world champions are mm-hmm. that small. So yep. in that respect, you know, they could be called a pony by anybody else's standards. Yeah, But so... It's amazing how through, again, you mentioned a short time of our breed becoming the most popular breed in the world. Mm -hmm. Like in Canada now, a quarter of all the horses in Canada are quarter horses. Mm. And there's, yeah, yeah. So, and it's a relatively young breed, you know, where we aren't even a hundred years old yet. What did it start back in the 1940s? Early 40s, yeah. So, So here we are, and again, a testimony to the versatility of them and and the Mm -hmm. adaptability and the, well, probably the biggest thing I see is the temperament. You know, the quarter horse, that's where they shine still, regardless of whether you've got the hunter under saddle, the the bigger thoroughready type horse, or they got that disposition and that trainability that everybody loves and, you know, and amateurs and real novice people can mm-hmm. take a horse and and have a good horse and really enjoy it. So yep. I, I, I think as much as, like you say, we've got away from the traditional versatile quarter horse, but yet we've got it in a lot bigger spectrum where we got the versatile, but the specialists in all these different areas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it takes a specialist to win now because the competition is so tough that, you know, you just can't take an average moving horse and and win on a world scale. So, Yeah, good perspective for sure. And I'm thinking about how we could, we could get into a, 
conversation about confirmation and the confirmation of horses, the athletic ability and what athletic ability is and, you know, discipline specific breeding versus breeding for a more recreational market, etc. But all of that is overshadowed by what you said. If we don't have disposition, we have nothing. It doesn't matter about the rest of the horse because if they don't have the mind and, you know, if they're not trainable and willing the rest of it doesn't really yeah, matter, yeah. does it? Yeah. And regardless of whether you're a, a super world-class trainer or a real novice recreation rider, mm-hmm. you're right. We all want that disposition. And I think it's an appropriate time to talk about the numbers. You know, the AQHA's own numbers show 12 to 15% of people ever setting foot inside a competition ring, which means that when we have, uh, let's say, an 80% plus industry market that is made up of recreational members, whatever it is that they want to do with their horses, then we have to remember to focus on the recreational rider. Yeah. So. Well, and and almost regardless of the discipline, most of them wind up exactly there in that market of being a recreation horse. Yeah. You know, whether a lawn ornament for somebody who just loves to have a horse and maybe go out and pet it or, you know, get on two or three times a year and on a weekend and go for a bit of a ride. Yeah. But for sure, or the recreation, the non-competitive horses that the or the non-competitive riders that have a a recreation horse, you know, some of them they need a really sound horse too, and they'll ride a lot and cover a pile of miles, probably more than the show people. If we compare it with the people that are really into Perhaps. competition, and so I. I I think, well, getting back to the disposition, everybody needs that. And mm-hmm. and everybody needs a sound horse. It's just mm-hmm. that, you know, the recreation horse tends to, maybe doesn't have to be a sound to be serviceably sound. Yes. And we use that a lot in veterinary medicine where there's a difference between a horse being outright 100% sound and whether any of the horses are truly that versus serviceably sound. And obviously, if you're just going to walk and jog on a trail, a horse doesn't have to be as sound as a horse that's going to be a high-performance rainer or a cutter or something. Indeed. Indeed. Doc, if we circle around again to the general soundness and the changes that you've seen over your years involved in the horse business, would would it be fair for me to say that the soundness of horses today, the expectation of soundness of horses today is carried by the veterinary industry as opposed to expected from the breeders and what they're creating? I, for sure, the veterinary business has got a lot bigger role to play. I, I don't know if you can say they're the main factor in that, but but for sure, we see horses that are two and three years old that need a lot of maintenance of their joints and everything to keep them sound. Mm-hmm. And and sorry to interject here, but did you see that when you were early on in your practice as much? Right. No. 
No. So in that sense, for sure, the veterinarians have played a bigger and bigger role. And, and you know, it's great for the veterinary business, I guess. Yeah, sure. You know, you have a lot of sound, <clears throat> unsound horses that you need to, to say, you know, simply inject joints or mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a whole package. I, I think now we do a lot more preventative stuff than we used to just because we're smarter. And, of course, we've got the diagnostic equipment, all the digital x-rays and digital ultrasounds and sure. and all the technology, the lasers and everything, and the shock wave to treat. But for the diagnostic things, we can pick up a lot more subtle things, and then there's a, a real tendency to want to do our best to counteract that being a degenerative thing or slow the degenerative process if it may be going to happen mm -hmm. try to keep these horses sounder longer so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i th i think uh, there's definitely a combination there of us picking up a lot more very subtle changes that we get worried about versus, you know, again, earlier in my career where, you know, the particular, if I talk about x-rays, I mean, not even going to, to MRIs and, and bone scans and that, which are more specific and really pick up very, very subtle changes. But even just simply x-rays were, you know, even when I started my career, you know, in the at the end of the 60s, you know, we x-rayed, but the, the quality of our x-ray was nothing like it is now. So, but, you know, now inherent in a lot of our bloodlines or a lot of our horses are all this uh, degenerative joint disease, OCD. Mm -hmm. And for sure, there's a lot more of that than there used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can pick up a lot more subtle changes, too, than we used to be able to. So we get a, I don't know, a double whammy sort of thing where we really are seeing a lot more serious problems there, but also picking up a lot more problems that we would never pick up in the past. Yeah. So this might not be an answerable question, but why? Why is that occurring more now than it used to? Well, and it's a selection process. Like, I, I think you look back at the old ranchers, and of course, I'm not that old, but you know, the breeding used to be a real selection process on these ranches where if these horses weren't sound, they wouldn't breed them yeah. and they <clears> would <throat> soon be out of the herd. <clears throat> Whereas now, what we see, and, and here again, the veterinary profession uh, is a, a big factor there, and I, I don't know if we can say the veterinary profession is to blame for it, yeah. but we, if we have a horse that's been a real winner, regardless of the discipline, then we do all kinds of things to keep them going. So again, they have maybe a longer competitive career. And also, the next step, if they go into the breeding program, right. and of course, there again, we you don't have to be sound. If you've done good and you made a million dollars or something, then say a stallion, everybody flocks to him, and he might not be terribly sound. But right. uh, And so, but 
if they and again back to wanting that winner and the popular bloodlines to market you know people flock to those horses to breed to and then you get a whole new generation of horses if that horse wasn't very sound right. of being unsound and so then i i think it's snowballed a little bit mm -hmm. where we see horses that would never been bred in the past now are well in some cases leading the industry so dr burwash what would you give to someone as advice who is listening to this podcast and thinking about breeding their mare or mares at at this point in at this point in the in history at this point in the world what advice would you give them to look at in that stallion when they go either to look at him or if they can't look at him what should they ask to see yeah well, yeah, if you can't look at him, if you don't go see him and see him perform, see him move even, then it's really hard to evaluate. And then you're mostly looking at black type sort of thing. And of course, we've kind of evolved to that, like the race industry was forever, where if a horse had a good career and had what they call a lot of black type in a program, then they were sought after because they made a lot of money. and Empirical so, evidence. Yeah. 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 And so th that's, is more and more the gauge now in, in most of the disciplines in the quarter horse. And so, right. but if you're just starting, I, I guess you got to decide where you're going to go. Obviously we get back to, the disposition. Yeah. And I think back in the 80s in Alberta here, we had that horse improvement program that we had true form to function that mm -hmm. Dr. Beeman from Colorado kind of coined the term. And that was a, a great te teaching tool for people that they could learn about confirmation and they learn about free movement and, and, so we don't have that anymore. And so, again, it depends on the person's, what they want to do with the horse. Yes. Uh, and and where they're going to go or what level they want to go. Yeah. You know, you get a lot of people that are, are say, going to get in the breeding business that haven't really been horsemen. And, oh, and that's, an, uh, yeah, another thing that just popped in my mind. I think we have a lot of people that are in the breeding business that really don't know confirmation, mm -hmm. have grew up in an era where they don't appreciate, and I shouldn't categorize everybody or paint everybody with the same brush, but yet I, I see a lot of the newer people in the industry accept these unsoundnesses as a normal, mm -hmm. whereas I don't, because I started in an era where a lot of these unsoundnesses weren't in the industry. Yeah. But now it's more accepted that you're going to have these things and you deal with it. And so uh, I, I think we we've deteriorated the industry or, or the breed has deteriorated because of that, because you don't have the selection that 
we used to have, or again, right. if I compare to to a lot of the warm bloods, where again, maybe a, a good example, and I, I don't want to be too critical of the quarter horse, but interesting how things evolved in the breeding business. Like we'll get a lot better conception rates with frozen semen from warm blood horses mm -hmm. as a general rule and mm -hmm. they all are individuals versus the quarter horses and again that's largely because the warm bloods have been selected for fertility mm -hmm. with frozen semen for a number of generations now sure. whereas it's a relatively new thing with the quarter horse industry mm -hmm. so again it, you know it, it's really interesting how we can select and, and go in a direction relatively quickly in some ways. Yeah. Uh, and while well, getting back to the versatility of the quarter horse, what, how we can go and whether it's good or bad, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, in some cases it's been bad, Sure, but in other cases now we've, you know, the very top horses in all these disciplines are exceptional as mm -hmm. far as their athletic ability or their look or, yeah. you know, if you're talking to halter horses or whatever, mm -hmm. you know. So there's the good and the bad of sure. that. Yeah. Well, I suppose with any domestic animal or any any breed of horse where people are making the selection process, it, it would depend on how people are predominantly making that selection process, what direction it goes in, which is part of what I'm continually always thinking about and talking about in the discipline-specific choosing mating process right choosing of mates and again not that i think that it's necessarily a bad thing but i just want everyone to know that that isn't the only way to make a selection process and i think that's what we're talking about today that you have to be sure and look past just the evidence you can see on paper whether that gives a horse value or not yeah and for sure isn't the only thing, you know. So again, getting back to your question a while ago is, you know, what do they look at? I, I, I'd i like to think they, sh again, look at the disposition and the confirmation and the movement mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then the black type. But I think the, the performance record or uh, stallion, if you're choosing a stallion, his production record, and that's so important. And that's the bottom line with most stallions uh, as they evolve. You know, they could be a superstar in the competition, but that doesn't make them necessarily a sire where they're going right. to be prepotent in right. producing what they were right. with crosses with different mares. Right. And so... And there again, you'll see a lot of disciplines will have a certain bloodline that becomes very dominant. Yeah, yeah, or two or three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, the the selection process for mating decisions has to involve more than just black type pedigree and earnings on paper. 
in order to keep the longevity and the soundness and what made our breed what it was in the beginning, which was its ability to be versatile. So Dr. Burwash, one more thing I want to ask you about, and we've talked about a number of the considerations for selection process when making mating decisions in obviously disposition being top of the board, confirmation, their movement, their black type pedigree, their earnings, etc. And then one of the other things that's pretty popular in this day and age in, in the stock horse business, the quarter horse industry, for sure, is the five panel and now six panel testing. And I know that you are and have been in the past a member of Studbook and Registration Committee that considers all of these types of things coming into the AQHA and what rules will be instituted and how. So what is your take on the genetic diseases and, you know, just how pardon me, how much consideration should be given to those things in the selection process for choosing matings? Well, very important, depending on the the genetic defect or genetic irregularity. You know, the first one, then the one everybody knows about is the HYPP. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, it's the example of the AQHA not getting it identified because it was entirely new, and so, and so there, and there was a great reluctance because those horses were winning at halter, mostly uh, mm-hmm. uh, of trying to slow down or select against it, I guess, because it was almost necessary to be producing winners, mm. and so, but. Yeah, it's very important. Like the herd now, the other, maybe, I don't know if I call it the major one, but the one that's can be yep. deathly. Yep. Uh, so definitely, if you've got uh, a horse that is got one, maybe back up in that, I don't know if most people understand that there's two genes for every trait. So, well, it's not that simple, but anyhow. It's fine. Simple yeah. is good. Yeah. And so for these genetic diseases to be fully expressed, you most of them you need the two genes to be the the ones that are defective. Mm-hmm. And so and you know the herda, which is where the skin it just loses its elasticity and will tear off. Mm-hmm. Uh, if a horse has just got one of those genes, they doesn't totally manifest. normal. Yeah. But you sure don't want to breed that horse to another herda because mm-hmm. then you run the risk of at least one in four times of getting Double. a horse that's got both the genes defective and then a wasted horse. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, so yes, it definitely it is rare, very, very important to be looking at these things. And, and this is where the quarter horse, they get a lot of negative uh, uh, thoughts about the breed because it looks like, because we're identifying six and testing for six, mm-hmm. that, gee, this breed's really got a lot of trouble. Well, the, the quarter horse has been an industry leader in, in finding these right. genes and and identifying them so that we can 
use a good selection process in yeah. our breeding. And the other breeds don't tend to do that. Right. It's, so, it's being proactive. Yeah, we're yeah. being very proactive. Yeah. And so it makes us look a little bad as a breed. The American Quarter Horse is a breed. But it's a good thing because there again, we can select sure. what we don't want and, and or what we can live with. Yeah. Yeah, people can put a spin on it to make it look bad because the breed has all of these genetic defects that they're looking at. But the truth is that the the breed association has been proactive in identifying them and testing for them and making stallion testing mandatory so that everybody is on equal ground when it comes to using that as part of their selection process to make mating decisions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, and that's so important. Uh, and so, as you say, it, for the breed association, the breed registry, mm-hmm. to identify that and and have regulations about requiring that is is so good for the breed. Yeah, I wish that there was a way. You know, maybe it's coming that we could test genetically for OCD, parrot mouth, you know, cryptorchidism things like that so that it was verifiable. But I always find it interesting that there's kind of two camps that you see out there, people who don't give any credit to the genetic testing, that it's really, it's just a, an AQHA money grab, which I don't believe. <laughs> Definitely not. And then there are others who say that this needs to be at the top of your selection process, which I also don't believe. Well, <laughs> It depends on what, like if you have a herd of horse, yeah. uh, one that's eight, not A10, but uh, herd of N. One copy. One, yeah. yeah. Then it has to, and in a breeding program, it has to be number one because you definitely, it doesn't matter about the, the performance record, the production record, the disposition, doesn't matter about any of those things right. if that horse is also got one herd of gene. Right. So I should further qualify my statement in saying that I don't think it should be the top priority in the selection process. It needs to be part of the priority in the selection process. And for me personally, I've come to a place where I've decided that I can't live with a stallion who's a carrier of any of the things that are verifiable for us because they create multiple offspring per year, typically, whereas a mare, typically, not always, is creating one per per year. And so I can forgive her a recessive genetic disease that she's only going to pass on 50% of the time. And if it's a colt, we cut them. It's not, not a big deal, right? But for me, I want to look at stallions that are clear of those things so that I'm not propagating it in uh, multiplication numbers. Yeah. And I totally agree with you. Like, yeah, I could never live with a stallion that has one defect that Mm -hmm. he's not NN Mm -hmm. right across the board. Mm -hmm. Because you're mating that horse with so many different mares. Right. And so if that stallion has got some defect that's identified, then that really limits the number of mares that he should be crossed with. Mm -hmm. Whereas a mare, you can live with sure. maybe a number of genetic defects, it, but just yeah. choose your right stud. Right. And you're, like you say, you only got one 
well, unless you do a bunch of embryos, but yes. you've really only got one individual to be concerned yeah. about. That mare yeah. worse with the stallion, you, you might be concerned with, you know, 20 or 50 or like some of these studs, they're breeding 200 mares or a 400. year. 400. They're 400. Yes. And, uh, you know, then it becomes really critical. And that isn't to say that, you know, I don't want somebody coming at me and saying, hey, are you saying that we should have never bred metallic cat or highbrow cat or some of those horses that are herd of carriers? And that's not what I'm saying. But I, I just think that we need to be very careful about the, the selection process and which of those offspring perhaps are, are used to go on with and, and continue to propagate. Yeah. And, I, you know, how do you be overly critical well we are critical all right but you know if a horse is producing a, a, again a stallion is producing all kinds of winners then it's hard to be too negative about that horse you know and and again if you just select the right mares to right and yeah. and then the resulting right offspring after that yeah. you know i i could not advocate for a total a total cessation of breeding any horse that's a carrier because there's so many great horses out there yeah. that are, but certainly we can concentrate on going forward with the horses that are not carriers of those genetic diseases as we, yeah. as we look to the future. Yeah. So lots of things for yeah. us to think about when we're making breeding decisions for you to think about in your program and me and mine and everybody else who's doing the, the breeding as well. Dr. Burwash, I just, we talked a little bit about your involvement with the AQHA. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? How long you've been involved, the different committees that you've been on? Well, I, of course, was involved locally with the Alberta affiliate of the AQHA, you know, back in the 70s and 80s even. And during the 80s was the time when we had the Alberta Corridor Breeders Group, which was huge. And we started exporting horses to Europe. And so we largely got the quarter horse into Europe. It, like there really weren't many there. And so we, through the 80s and into the early 90s, before the Americans got going on it, we were the main exporter of horses into Europe. Mm -hmm. And so that was my first really big involvement where I was the president of the breeders group here. And, and so we had major shipments of horses going overseas then. But as far as, so that's more of a local thing. As far as the AQHA, I, Shannon was a director first and I don't know, she got in around 2000 or something, I think. And so then I, was elected as a director in 2011, I think it was. And, and that, that was, I was on the stud book committee for a year or two before I was a director. And then since I became a director, I've been on the stud book and registration committee mostly, but also spent a number of years on the research committee. Mm -hmm. So they're both excellent committees. And there again, the, the AQHA is very proactive in financing and supporting a lot of really good research. Yeah. So there's, I don't know, 
depended on the year and the success of investments, but we were looking at supporting 300,000 to think up to over $600,000 hmm. worth of research a year. So again, the AQHA has been excellent in mm -hmm. in so many things for the the whole horse industry, not just the quarter horse breed. And so uh, you know, we got to applaud them. You know, I, they yeah. get a lot of really negative feedback. I think a lot of times just because they're so big and powerful, but yet they've they've earned that position and mm -hmm. they continue being proactive enough in so many ways to do the quarter horse good, but also right. all breeds, yes, all horses, yeah. nutrition, disease prevention and control, whatever. And so... Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Would you encourage people who are maybe listening to us visit today to get involved with the AQHA and, you know, at a, at a policy level to come to convention, those kinds of things? Well, yeah, for sure. Like at the convention, they've got one day that's largely an educational day. Mm -hmm. And so that's got to be interesting to people that want to learn things. Uh, as far as uh, the policy goes and making rules and regulations, I, I guess that I don't look at that as being something that the average person would really get turned on with you know yeah. I, yeah. I you know i think there's a where you're a more serious breeder or competing in any of a number of of the disciplines you know and it doesn't even have to be uh an AQHA approved discipline, you know, you get a lot of the the barrel racers or the team ropers that I don't mean to pick on them, but they got huge competitions and yep. just for weekend jackpots. And and so, you know, the soundness and the regulations of the breed are important to them, but yet I don't see them really getting that involved a sure. lot of times, sure. you know. But for someone who's interested in being involved would you oh. would you encourage them to yeah. come to convention and you know oh, yeah. not only that part but talking about the networking opportunities and just the ability to meet people yeah. and and learn things outside of your normal parameters of your thought process etc yeah. there's no end to it in, yeah. in my opinion no I, I totally agree and and you know there's the social thing too beyond mm -hmm. the education and the the stimulation of learning things yeah. is that, you know, the so many very, very interesting people that you meet. Yes. And I, I, you know, through breeding, not just going to the convention, but there's so many good people in the horse industry that, yeah. you know, you meet in your breeding program or in the showing or through my veterinary practice. Mm -hmm. I just mm -hmm. look at so many good people that I would have never matter yeah. become friends with or whatever if it wasn't for the horse and, right uh, agreed yeah hence the reason we're sitting here having this visit yeah. today yeah. yeah doc i i wonder if you want to talk a little bit you've mentioned a number of times your late wife shannon and i wonder if you want to talk a little bit about her influence on your life and and perhaps the the education sponsorship that you that you do in her name and how important that is well, yeah, you know, uh, Shannon and I were, of course, 
number one, our whole life revolved around the horse, both me professionally as well as our raising of horses and showing and that. So, but, you know, so much of the horse industry we found was built on anecdotal things and folklore. And and so we both became, well, we both saw how doors open by being educated. And so we were both very strong advocates of kids getting a post-secondary education. And, you know, it doesn't have to be university, but something to open their eyes and teach them how to think and and be more worldly. And so that was a real big thing that Shannon and I thought of. And, and because of the a lot of the industry, the horse industry, didn't seem to be based as much on science and good solid fact. I, you know, we we need leaders that know things and and will be leaders in the horse industry. So that's when Shannon passed away. I uh, I just thought, well, you know, this was such a big thing for her to have people get an education number one, be a horsey person, but get an education and hopefully through the scholarship program that we've established that we'll have new people coming in the horse industry that'll eventually be leaders in the horse industry that have a good solid education and we can build a you know the selection process we've talked mostly today about the mm-hmm. breeding and and everything and and how a lot of it really hasn't maybe got as much of a a good scientific analysis if we can do that at all but mm-hmm. anyhow so that's w- what the scholarship program is for for young students who are horse oriented that you know, have decent academics, but not necessarily, but show leadership qualities, show volunteerism, and hopefully will turn out to be the leaders in the horse industry that we need to, to keep it going. Because I, I think the the horse industry is is shrinking somewhat. Mm-hmm. and And that's largely because people are moving away from farming and agriculture. We get, you know, three and four generations of people that are urbanites. And so they don't have that association with the horse and Mm -hmm. the land and grassroots and that. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I guess I'd like to get back to that a little bit too. So can you give listeners an idea of where to go to find out about that, that sponsorship? Well, this scholarship fund is administered through the Calgary Foundation. Mm-hmm. And so they they do all the advert well, it isn't really advertised, but they do all the administrative stuff to get it out to all the industries, all the the colleges, the universities, you know, right from like Olds College or any yeah. of the veterinary tech colleges, yeah. uh, the veterinary schools, the agriculture schools right across Canada. Yeah. And the, the scholarship fund is strictly for Canadian students. Yeah. 
and we got two levels where the one level is for students that are just starting in post-secondary education, and then another set of two scholarships for students that are more advanced. Mm -hmm. And so... That's great. It's a yeah. great scholarship opportunity. So if anybody yeah. wants to look for it, they can look for it under the Shannon Burwash Memorial Scholarship. Yeah. So Correct. all the universities and colleges should have it listed in yeah. their lists. But yeah. if you go on the Calgary Foundation website, then it it's there for sure. sure. Yeah. I have a quick story, and it involves you, of course. And one of the first one of the first conventions that I went to. I remember we went to a social and I just ran into you and you said, come with me, I'll introduce you to some people. And one of the people you introduced me to was Dr. Glenn Blodgett from the Four Sixes. And, you know, the the rest of my story is that I just remember standing there, listening to the two of you visit and thinking, in what other opportunity in the world would I have to try and gain knowledge from Dr. Burwash wow. and Dr. Blodgett, except at the AQHA convention. Yeah. So that is a standout memory for me. And I've said to you before, Wayne, but I'll say it again. I want to thank you for everything oh, that yeah. you've done for me, all the no. times you've brought me along, all the times you've straightened me out. <laughs> well, no, I don't think so. Uh, and I also really want to thank you for agreeing to do this today. Yeah, and no, you're very welcome. And I hope that it helps. I don't know. I probably rambled on a lot. But anyhow, that's some of my ideas. And, and you know, getting back to the convention, when you talk about Dr. Blodgett, uh, you know, that's a, a prime example of people going and just being around and and, and start to talk to people. And you, mm -hmm. you get to meet so many really interesting, very wise people. And, Indeed. And you can learn so much. But just the social thing is, yeah. is fun, too. And, of course, that's it is the bottom line with everything we got to enjoy yes. life and have fun and develop friendships and relationships yeah. and speaking of being around wise and knowledgeable people that's how i feel when i'm around you <laughs> well i'm not so. sure if well, no, I'm, I'm yeah, sure i'm okay. sure dr burwash is there anything else that you would like to talk about or okay. I'm going to say thank you very much, Dr. Burwash, well, for being welcome. on the Quarter Horse Hauler. And you are our first interview ever. <laughs> you have always been in my mind since I started thinking about doing a podcast with your knowledge and your life experience as a, as a quarter horse horseman. I really appreciate your time and, and your energy to be on here. Yeah. And I want to thank you. And Shannon, both of you, for all of your contributions to the industry well, and, and all of those things. So that is the conclusion of the interview with Dr. Wayne Burwash. And thank you for listening to the Quarter Horse Hauler. This is just going to be our, our second episode, or at least it's only the second time we've recorded. There'll be more coming your way. I want you to know that we have secured agreement for interviews with some really great trainers. One is Josh Nickel. Another is Jonathan Field, and another is a guy that some of you may know by the name of Al Dunning. So we've got some great things coming your way. We're sure looking forward to the future. And if you'd like to reach me, it's ryan at fleetwoodfarms.com. Email me at ryan at fleetwoodfarms.com. As always, I remain what's committed to the best for the breed. <laughs>